Um, so I'm asking Lee to have, have a go, Lee, and uh, out there to to read us John John 19. You might want to turn to it. Um, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officers officials saw them, him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. So you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, 
his disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on, look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he had feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance to the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Do you refuse to say anything? The Roman governor can't quite believe it. Jesus stands before him, facing a death sentence, on trumped up charges, the crowd are calling for his crucifixion, and yet Jesus refuses to defend himself. Jesus has open blind eyes. He's raised the dead with just a word. But now Jesus, who's demonstrated such power for others, heads resolutely to his own death. Why? Wherever he goes, we see Jesus offering life. Wine to an embarrassed bridegroom, satisfaction to a thirsty woman, light to anyone who recognizes that they're in darkness. Jesus emphasizes that true life can only be found in relationship with the one true God, the God he reveals. And so, if we're to truly live, to truly come alive, it needs to be life with him. That's why Jesus heads so determinedly to the cross. The voluntary death of Jesus makes that relationship possible. The death of Jesus makes us truly come alive. When Jesus meets the outcast woman by the well, he shows her the source of her thirst. Her satisfaction problem is actually a worship problem. 
She's built her life on things that were never meant to support it. She's treasured things that were never supposed to be of ultimate value. And so she walks out on God, the one who truly belongs at the center. She's walked out of the one relationship of ultimate value, the one she was made for. She's made the God who made her a footnote and is left thirsty and dry. Her story is your story and mine. Seeking life, we've walked out on knowing God and cut ourselves off from the giver of life. And God's response isn't just sorrow, it's also anger. As soon as we place ultimate value on other things, we find ourselves warring for them, even trampling others to get them. Our world's brokenness has its roots in the fact that we've walked away from the God of life. Each of us has heaped our own contribution to wreck the world further still. And to a God of perfect love, that matters. God will not let evil have the final say in the universe. Justice must be done. Evil must be punished. Our evil must be punished. These words aren't easy to hear, but until we recognize their truth, Jesus' death will always remain a mystery to us because in his love, as Jesus dies, he dies our death in our place. God, the source of life, willingly surrenders his life in order that we might have life. Jesus takes upon himself our thirst, our blindness, our wreckage and our death and pays the price to deal with them himself. He says, it is finished. Nothing is left for us to pay. He offers us life, life in quality and quantity, life to the full, life with him, true life as it was meant to be lived. Will you accept the life that he freely gives? And will you do it on his terms? So just a little introduction there to, uh, to, to John um, 19. Uh, hope you can see me now. Because I, I wonder what you're thinking in this, uh, these coronavirus times. I wonder whether you, you're thinking, um, where, is, where is God in this? Um, how am I supposed to draw on God in this? Where is, where is God's presence? Um, I had an email from, uh, from Admiral Insurance this week. Um, telling me that they're going to give me £25 for each car that I've got insured with them. Um, and since we have a multi-car policy, that's, that's good news. Uh, I'm very chuffed uh, to see that. It's not every day that your insurance company writes uh, and says that they are going to bless you unexpectedly. It's not what you ex expect insurance companies to do. Um, you just expect them to, to bail you out uh, in an emergency. And it's just really easy um, to treat the Lord in, in the same way. And I want us to think this through. It's just really easy to treat the Lord as a kind of reassuring idea, as, as, an, as an insurance policy. Um, so, you, so I can say, I can insure the cars, it just takes me a bit of, it, a bit of attention once a year, uh, I'll pay the premium, uh, I, I know it's insured. Um, and I can forget it the rest of the time. And I just, if somebody asks me and they say, do you have insurance? I can say, I'm, I'm with Admiral. 
uncovered something happened. And, and maybe you, we're in the danger of treating the Lord in the same kind of way. We, we say, uh, I'm, I'm with the Lord. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm covered should something happen. And every so often, maybe just out of the blue, you get an unexpected blessing, uh, 25 quid uh, out of nowhere. But the rest of the time, he's, he's somewhere in the background. Or maybe he's even a, like a badge to wear. Christianity is just a kind of badge. I'm a Christian because you need some kind of something to identify with. Well, the, the real danger in this, the danger is that if we keep him in the background until now, we find it difficult now to know how to draw on his resources now that time uh, has got difficult. I don't know what you find, but I found that I've been asking too little of him, too little of him um, in, in recent times. And now in the moment of crisis, it makes that more difficult to draw on him uh, for what I need. So what's the answer? Well, part of the answer is to remind ourselves of the gritty and gruesome realities of the story. Uh, and I want the, uh, the aspects of this story to kind of pull our picture of Jesus out of this kind of spiritual domain, uh, out of this part of our brain where we keep theoretical ideas and spiritual realities, and to pull it into the everyday problem-filled physical world part of our brain. So let's just remind ourselves really briefly of what happened in this story. There was a flogging. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, is what we read. Ripped his back to shreds with a whip with bits of metal in it or bits of bone. Soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, we read. They drew blood in a kind of brutal mockery of, of kingship. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Then there's an account of the trial. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then the crucifixion. Soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And we know from the other Gospels that even that carrying the cross was beyond him. He needed help. Simon of Cyrene was press ganged into it. And there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And there they, they nailed him, nails through the hand and feet uh, to some great planks of wood. Then the death. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put a sponge on the stalk of hyssop and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Jesus is exhausted by pain and by the agony uh, of staying alive. Every breath must have been uh, excruciating pain. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tis mystery, all the immortal dies and Jesus dies willingly he can't be killed he's immortal but he gives up his spirit then the piercing in a great act of hypocrisy the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies up on the cross um, during the, uh, the the Sabbath they asked um, Pilate to take the the bodies down the, the soldiers came and, the, and they broke the legs they, they had a big iron mallet and they came to the, the bodies 
uh, the guys either side of Jesus who were still alive and they, uh, and they smashed their legs um, so that they would die quickly. But they came to Jesus and they didn't. He's already dead. He gave up his spirit. But one of the soldiers shoves a spear um, into his side and there's a flow of blood and water. Jesus is dead. He's verifiably dead. The blood is, is, is separating out. And then the burial. Joseph comes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. But he can't have just... He must have come with a team, he must have come with a cart, or he must have come with, with, with servants uh, to take the body of Jesus and carry such a heavy thing away. He's accompanied by Nicodemus, and he brings about 35 kilograms of spices. So again, Nicodemus is carrying the weight of a 10-year-old. Um, you know, the place where Jesus was crucified was a garden, in the garden a new tomb. They laid Jesus there. Jesus' body is interred. So on Good Friday, we think about this, we thought about this only a couple of weeks ago, but we think about it in terms of the, of the cost then. Um, and of course it does cost Jesus, but I don't want us to think so much of the cost today, even though it does cost, but I want you to kind of remove this from, from this theoretical side of your brain and put it into the everyday um, side of your brain um, that Jesus um, suffered. Because Jesus doesn't want to be a background insurance policy for you. He wants to be the thing that grips your imagination the most. He wants to be the thing that grips your imagination the most. And he intends to make you ready for the day when you physically encounter him. When you meet him face to face, when you're raised and you have a physical encounter with, with the living Christ. You can't allow Jesus to stay in this uh, theoretical part of our brain. So the first part, I think, of the answer to that problem is to look again at the physicality of the events. But also, I just really briefly want to look at these events as a series of exchanges. Um, and just point you to some passages you might like to read um, in, in the coming days. And when we start to understand this exchange, then I think we start to live in the light of, of Jesus' death, um, rather than keeping it in the background. So it's an interesting story, isn't it? Um, Pilate and, and the Jewish people. Uh, Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. The Jewish leaders insist that he is guilty. Um, he's guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Um, he's guilty of treason. He's guilty of claiming to be a king. Uh, the first one is their main concern. The second one is, is just something they, they kind of in, invent or they, they just raise to try and get uh, Pilate to, to kill Jesus. And eventually Pilate gives in only if he can wash his hands and only if he can, uh, if he can make the point that they're crucifying their king. And he hopes that by sticking a notice above Jesus that he really is the king of the Jews, that will be enough to absolve him. But the reality is this, go back to Genesis 3. We are the ones who want to be gods and kings. We're the ones who utter blasphemy, we want to be gods of our own lives. We're the ones who believe the lie uh, that our first parents believed, 
The snake said, God knows when you eat from, from the fruit of the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. We're the ones who want to make our own decisions, want to define our own morality. And the irony is that, that our king, the one who is king, the one who is God, um, dies in our place. And if we don't get that, or if we live in some half-hearted version of it, where we name-check Jesus, but we're still involved in self-rule in our lives, self-rule lives... Uh, leads to spiritual unreality. Things of, of, of Christ, the things of God, don't seem real to us. And spiritual unreality leaves, leaves us unprepared for times of crisis. So there's the first exchange. The king exchanges his life for his subjects. Second one is a ram's death for, for, for the son. You can go back, uh, read this in, in Genesis 22. Just let me point it out to you. You can go and look it up. Jesus carries this wooden beam of the cross across his shoulders, and he uh, carries it to the place of execution. Does it remind you of a story? There's an Old Testament story in Genesis 22 where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, Abraham puts the wood for the fire um, across Isaac's shoulder and marches him up the mountain, which may well be the same mountain that Jesus walked up. And Isaac says, what is the wood for, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And when they get there, just about Abraham is to put in the knife, um, God shows him a, a, a ram caught in the thicket and, and they sacrifice the, the ram instead. God provides uh, a ram instead uh, of the sun. Well, now as Jesus goes up that same hill, God provides his son uh, as a sacrifice uh, for us so that we can be sons and daughters of God. And you know this. But the danger is that we don't live in the light of it. Have you lived as spiritual orphans? Not really attaching to your heavenly father. And if that's the case, we're left unprepared for the times when we need the fatherhood of God. Jesus is the Passover lamb. You can go back and read um, Exodus 12. I think you know this story. Um, as, as the Jews were, uh, God was rescuing the Jewish people out of captivity in Egypt. He's going to send a destroying angel through the land. And uh, the Jewish people are to sacrifice a lamb and, and sprinkle the blood on the doorposts uh, of the house. And then the, the destroying angel, the angel of death, passes over. And Jesus is the Passover lamb, and interestingly, none of his bones are broken. Go back to Exodus 12, verse 46, look it up this afternoon. It was a feature of the Passover lamb that none of its bones were to be broken. It was a deliberate foreshadowing that Jesus is going to be this Passover lamb. And on the cross, God's wrath is averted. And those who trust the cross, you and I get to be included amongst the people of God. But if we don't live as the people of God, if we carry on living as individuals, our vision of God is blurred and our consciences, consciences which should be sharpened by one another, are clouded and we live unprepared for the day of trouble. 
Another exchange yeah, that we see in this passage is an innocent man forsaken for the, for the criminal. But Barabbas is the man who should be punished, uh, uh, but it's Jesus who, who is punished. Um, Jesus should be released, but it's, it's Barabbas that goes free. Maybe it should have been Barabbas on that middle cross. But instead it's Jesus and Barabbas, where does he go? We don't know out of the story. I think he made the quickest exit anybody has ever made out of Jerusalem. And instead, we see Jesus on the cross. And what does Jesus say? What happens to Jesus? They, um, they divide his clothes. And they cast lots from my garment. That's a quote from Psalm 22. That's another place to go. If spiritual things are seeming unreal to you, go to Psalm 22. And effectively, in many ways, it is the voice of Jesus um, from the cross. Jesus is this God punished God forsaken man Psalm 22 starts my God my God why have you forsaken me so we are the Barabbases but the exchange is this only in this one innocent man the only innocent man that there's ever been his life exchanged for ours but if we give lip service to that and live uh, carry on living as rebels then if we're Christians genuinely trusting Christ. God never forsakes us, but to the extent that we rebel, our experience of him is thinned, and we leave ourselves unready for the crisis. The other thing we see, another exchange we see, is one of spiritual family for blood relations. Jesus commends his mother um, to, to John. He commends his mother to a believing cousin rather than to his unbelieving brothers. It's interesting, isn't it? And in the same way, we have a new family. Jesus said uh, earlier on in his life, who, who are my family? They're the people who do the will of God. You have a new family, a, a spiritual family uh, in Christ, in the church. If you don't treat them as family, if you don't treat them as your blood relations, your experience of God is dim and you are less ready for when times are hard. So, so to draw on Christ, to draw on God's resources now, we need to live in the light of these exchanges. We need uh, to see the, the physical reality uh, of what Jesus went through. But thankfully, we all know we will have failed at that, doing that at some point or another. And so the good news is that Jesus on the cross says it is finished. First of all, he says it's thirsty. Um, that's the fulfillment of a prophecy um, from Psalm 69. And then he says, it is finished. He says, it is finished. What's finished? Well, Jesus has completed his Father's will. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus has finished his Father's will. He has revealed his Father's heart. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God has made him known. And he has achieved our atonement, our reconciliation um, with God. One writer says, there's nothing in all our human endeavours and in all the human story that God can find fully, or fully acceptable or concerning which he can say, that has no need of redemption. In other words, there's nothing in us that is so right that we can use it 
to try and atone for what we do wrong before God. There's only one atoning thing. I know we say this again and again. There is only one thing that atones, and that is Jesus' death on the cross. Now, the good news is he has done it. And by doing it on the cross, your atonement, your reconciliation with God, it is finished, it is completed, it is done. That's not in question. But we have to struggle in the meantime for spiritual reality. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus, who end this story, suddenly come into the limelight. Um, Joseph comes out of the, the, the closet and, and asks for the body. Um, he was a disciple, we're told, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Nicodemus um, was a man who visited Jesus uh, in the dark at night time, John 3. And, and now uh, he, he comes into the limelight. Both were members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling, ruling council. Where were they at the trial? I guess it's possible they weren't invited, but maybe they were there and just their mouths were shut. So there is a, a battle on, and uh, a guy called Reinhold Niebuhr says this, a religion is not, as is frequently supposed, a fundamentally virtuous human quest for God. It is rather the final battleground in the struggle between God and human self-esteem. Religion is not about fighting to be virtuous. It's about fighting um, to give God the ultimate place in your life. It is about fighting to allow God um, to be first. First, even in atonement and uh, redeeming you and putting you right with himself. There is a constant battle to live in the light of this exchange that Jesus has done for you. A battle for you to be second and for him to be first. But when we do that, God is increasingly real to us and we'll be ready for the time of trial. I'll pray in a moment. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll start thinking, I think, more, more directly about what is God saying in, in a coronavirus time? Um, uh, what is going on? But we need to finish off John, and we have one more session in, in, in John next week. Um, let me pray. And I pray out of my own experience. Father God, these things that you've done for us, we know to be true, and we're grateful that they are finished, that our salvation, our rescue is finished, our forgiveness is finished, it, it can't be earned. But Lord, maybe we're shown up now that we haven't lived in the light of them in the way that we could have done. We haven't prioritized Jesus as the thing which grips our imagination. We haven't prioritized Jesus' family as the people who matter. Haven't prioritized uh, the, the Father as the one who makes us secure in our relationships. But Lord, we want to do that now. We want to put that right. Thank you that you cover our mistakes. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. And we ask that you will be 
more real to us now than you ever have been before. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.